Hi, I'm Mark Spiegler, and this is Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. This episode brings together musician and artist Kim Gordon with gallerist Lisa Spellman, two women who were on the front row of the 80s and 90s New York art scene. The city then was the site of particularly vibrant cultural fermentation. It was a time shaped by everything from Andy Warhol's famous factory to the Judson Dance Church and the White Column Space, where Kim Gordon first showed her work in 1981 as part of her project called Design Office. Artists who we now consider living legends, such as Richard Prince, Dan Graham, and Katie Noland, were just staking out their territories. But the downtown scene also included cultural figures such as filmmaker Jim Jarmusch and the guitarist Johnny Thunders of the New York Dolls and the Heartbreakers. There's a nostalgia for that epic moment that runs throughout this episode, and for once it's fully deserved. Because as you'll hear, New York was a very different and arguably more special place then. But you'll also hear Kim and Lisa's broader reflections on the interaction between gentrification and cultural life, the speed with which art and music stars rise and fall, and the essential role that nightlife can play for culture. One final note, you'll hear a lot of names in this podcast coming fast and furious. If you want to know more about any of them, just check out the episode's liner notes. Lisa, I'm going to start with you. You opened your gallery in 1984 at 303 Park Avenue South. What was the New York art scene like at that time? What were you working around? What were you working within? At that time, it was also considered the photo district, which was sort of important. And I was going to school at the School for Visual Arts in the photography department, which was right around the corner, which is how I ended up in this space in the late 70s. So there was very much that kind of vibe in the neighborhood. The art world wasn't so much at 23rd and Park <laughs> at that time. <laughs> we were actually kind of closer to clubs like Max's Kansas City and Union Square. So Kim will probably elaborate better than I, but the intersection of the art world and music world and writers was really more on the peripheral of that neighborhood. That didn't really spark more until the East Village and early Soho days. I'm going to ask you, because New York is going to be a character in this podcast, why did you go there? Because normally when you open a gallery, the neighborhood <laughs> you choose is actually quite important. Exactly. Well, when I first got this loft in the late 70s, I was just a student at SVA with like a bunch of idiots in a big loft and going to school. I thought the space could one day be kind of great for a gallery, but that wouldn't happen until like five years later. So it was really more that I picked the neighborhood because of, of its proximity to SVA and its proximity to the six line, subway line and nightclubs. And I was like 19 when I found the space. Many gallerists are failed artists, but it sounded like when you got the loft, you were already thinking about having a gallery. Yeah, because sometimes at SVA, it's really hit or miss. The photography world at that point was so much centered on the history of photography. And my teachers didn't really even know who Cindy Sherman was or what artist space was. So then I decided showing my friends or other artists that I admired would be much more interesting. And then I could still pursue my own photography at the same time. So, Kim, you also studied art at the Artist Art Institute in L.A. in the late 70s. And then you came to New York a few years before Lisa opened her gallery. L.A. is thought of in a very distinct way now in the art world. And obviously, there's a lot going on then. When you think about the L.A. that you left and the New York you came 
to what sticks out in your mind? LA is funny because you don't feel like there's any center to it or any gravitational pull. I just felt like everything I had learned in art history and art school was so New York centric, fairly, except for environmental artists. I mean, I just felt like I tend to take on the energy of what's around me. And I just felt like I just couldn't see actually how to progress in LA as an artist. Otis was a funny school. John Knight was one of my teachers. He was a visiting artist, a conceptual artist. And he talked about New York so much. I was interested in the Judson Church dance scene and I read about the factory and Fossil River storefront and people like Mike Kelly and Jim Shaw and Marty Weber, they were some of the first artists to stay in LA of my peer group. Other people from Calarts, they all moved to New York. So basically I came to New York to make art and I just kind of fell into playing music. But you actually, before you, Sonic, you started, before you, before the band, you had a solo show at White Columns. Tell us a little bit about that show, because I think it's an important thing in terms of understanding your path in the cultural world. Well, I'm not sure how, actually, I stumbled upon White Columns. It must have been through Dan Graham, because he turned me on to a lot of no-wave music. I curated a couple of shows there. I was doing this thing called Design Office which was doing interventions and the idea was to do an intervention in an apartment or a private space, giving the person an art object that reflected something about them and then doing something small to alter the space, then writing about it and putting it back into a magazine. But mine was all kind of a lo-fi idea of design. Anyway, so my columns was like a showroom and I took chairs they were kind of hybrid designer chairs I borrowed from people's apartments and put them on display in the, the room. And I altered the office area. I made it into sort of a dining area. And the show was called Home or Office. <laughs> and then mostly Thurston curated the noise festival there. At the uh-huh. time. Because there's no place to play. Clubs kept closing. I think I had the show. I think it was... First, I had started playing music together, but Sonic Youth hadn't quite formed or something. But wait, just so we're clear, was it the show called Design Office by Kim Gordon, or was it just Design Office was the moniker of the artist? It was Design Office Kim Gordon. The idea was to pretend that there were more of us. (laughs) So Design Office was you and a bunch of imaginary collaborators that were covering. Yeah, in the beginning, it was me and Vicky Alexander, but... Then I quickly just decided I wanted to do it on my own. Right. I'm curious how you two met. We met through this woman, Michael Schamberg's girlfriend, Stanton Miranda. Dan Graham had asked me if I wanted to make an all-girl band to do this audience mirror performance piece with, and he introduced me to Miranda. So we started playing music together with Christine Hahn, who was in this band, The Static, with Glenn Branca. We did one performance in Boston at the ICA. I think Christian Markley was the one who invited Dan there. So we did that. And then Christine left to go play with Malaria in Germany. And Miranda was also playing music with Thurston. And she took him to see his band's last show and introduced us. Lisa, do you remember meeting Kim at the time? 
Yeah, I used to see Kim come into the gallery and we would just say hi. But the first time I think I really met Kim was through Rodney Graham. And also Richard, we had so many interconnecting friends and colleagues and Richard Prince also and Kim and those guys go way back. And now a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. In the Big Apple, seven out of ten collectors surveyed were considering the ethnic and cultural diversity of their collections when making acquisitions. Will the rest of the art world follow in the footsteps of New York City's collectors? For more insights, visit ubs.com collecting. And now back to the show. It's interesting when you think about all these people who are now major cultural figures sort of in the mix. And I think for those of us who are just a little bit younger, it feels like that kind of intermixing doesn't happen as much as it used to. There's always the risk of this kind of nostalgia for the good old days that didn't exist. But <laughs> were the good old days of New York, that, that East Village scene, the downtown scene, as good as they sound? <laughs> in a way, I mean, things were very bleak. <laughs> so many memories of putting up posters in the middle of winter, <laughs> having poster wars, whether it was to like advertise that your band was playing or for money, or what the weed pays to grow. You had to be really quick. It was kind of scary walking around downtown. We didn't have very much money, so you're, you're always kind of living hand to mouth. The gigs were amazing, and it was very exciting. In the late 70s, Michael Zwack is the one who put on this night of no way bands at Artist Space. And I think some of our first gigs were playing benefits at nonprofit spaces. And I think a lot of things in New York evolve out of convenience or just real estate opportunities, <laughs> like what's left over or what no one's looking at. Because of that, all these young artists were involved in the sort of no wave scene, a lot of them playing in bands like people like Robert Longo. You can go to White Columbus 50th anniversary yeah. show and see like all the things that were, you know, it's a really good example of all the different, at some point they really got serious about their careers. And, and I think New York at the same time, Lisa can speak more to this than I can, but it just seemed like the art world here evolved into such a marketplace and with the evolution of real estate development too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lisa, what was your impression of the art scene then and also the interaction between music and art? I have this impression of the old days being this period where the Velvet Underground and Jim Jarmusch and Basquiat were all in the same clubs every night, which I know isn't quite true, but how was it? <laughs> the level, I'm sure Kim probably had more fun than I did, but the level of fun was really the different stratosphere of now. Every day I felt like I was walking in a post-apocalypse William Klein documentary in terms of the characters that you would see. Like in the morning, I would be shooting 
really crazy scenes over on the abandoned West Side piers that were half on fire, half junkies, half homeless, half sex parties. That would just be a normal morning. And then in the afternoon, you would see Johnny Thunders walking down the street with $100 bills falling out of his pocket. And you would go to Mug Club. I wouldn't even go to Mug Club until three in the morning. I would go in my pajamas. It really was like, I had no idea then how lucky I was to be exposed to Glenn O'Brien coming in the gallery when I was like 24 and just talking philosophy and poetry. And Diego Cortez, I met also really young. Every time one of these legends passes away, the impact is so great because you know that each one of them is completely irreplaceable. To see Warhol was so ordinary, you almost kind of wished he would stay home. It was so ever-present. Really, for me, too, even though I am obviously not in the music world, really the access point was music for the art world, the way that I saw it back then. Neighborhoods were really critical. East Village and Soho, all these artists and writers and philosophers and art critics like Gary and Diana, they all lived there. So you would see hundreds of amazing people in the course of a few days. And it was nothing to them. It was just like, oh, you. Oh, yeah, it's you again. It was so banal. It was, anyway, something that I don't think we can recreate culture like that again. And then it kind of fast forwarded into the early 90s. New York artists went into like a really young renaissance after the Gulf War, when New York was in another recession. This like incredible new art scene emerged. Rick Ritt, Katie Nolan, Karen Kalibnik, Jessica Stockholder. And that was incredible to also witness because we were so used to the art world having been relocated back to Europe. And that's where all the artists wanted to be. And that's what we were looking towards. So that was really nice to bring it back to New York. I mean, sadly, now I think the big distinction is that the art world has become so professionalized. Even younger galleries, I don't know if there's pressure on them to be really professional and really corporate because you don't want that to happen because you want them just to be as completely spontaneous and insane and creative as they possibly can imagine. And we have to allow that space for that to happen and to grow. I mean, if you're paying $20,000 a month rent, I don't know how spontaneous you can be anymore. I felt like also we were so lucky early on to be exposed to so many amazing women artists because I felt like in other industries in the city, it was still very male-dominated. But the amazing thing about the art world intersecting with music and writing was that there were so many incredible women around. And I felt like that was very different than the corporate world. Kim, I came across an essay in my preparation essay you wrote called Trash, Drugs, and Male Bonding, which is about performative masculinity in the rock scene. When you compared the music scene and the art scene that you were active in both of, do you see a difference with the position of women at that time and at this time? Well, there are actually a lot of women involved with the no-way scene. If you think about it, there's like Lydia Lunch, there's Hat Place, Adele Bertai, Barbara S., Kristen Hunt, and others. <laughs> and that was also true, I think, throughout the whole punk scene, which in England, it definitely had a different face to it. And it came out with slightly different things. There's the whole argument who started to talk about that. But it just seemed like gender wasn't such an issue. Mm-hmm. It was more like a 
neuter <laughs> kind of uh, zone. And mainstream music is more male. So I don't know, but I was just kind of perversely interested because Dan Graham had written about feminism and women's voices and stuff. I just perversely wanted to write something about a man because that's not what I was supposed to be focused on. <laughs> um, but I also was actually interested in male bonding simply because I couldn't find anything anyone had written about it either. I was reading John Ritchie books. You know, he wrote about the gay bar scene in the West Village. And that was the only material I could find that talked about male desire. <laughs> you mentioned Dan Graham before. Yes, right. I didn't realize. It sounds like he was a really important figure in your life at the time. Yeah, he was. I um, met him in L.A., with John Knight, and so I looked him up when I came here, and he took me to Franklin Furnace, he introduced me to Wharton Tears and Glenn and Jeffrey Lone and people who were involved with them. The no way scene, and he also encouraged me to write. I saw that it's not enough just to make your own work, kind of contribute to the community, since I wasn't having any art shows or making art, aside from the design office thing. So I felt like I should write. That was a period also where, at least from a distance, it seems that the whole rap and hip-hop scene sort of started coming into the art scene, whether it was with Blondie and Rapture, with graffiti artists being shown in galleries. I think of the influence of that on Cool Thing, the Sonic Youth song. What's interesting is, when I think about music, for example, Black culture was imitated and repurposed by white bands, where suddenly it was becoming part of what feels like a much more mixed culture. Is that read on it right? Well, I mean, the Beastie Boys were really the first sort of downtown band to embrace hip-hop. As far as music goes, New York has always had such a history of just melding sounds, you know, like jazz and free jazz, and then there's minimalist music and music here in the street like hip hop music and lots of dissonance. And so it's kind of easy to see how musical influences came together to create art bands, basically. But at the same time, the whole indie rock scene as it developed in the 90s was very white. <laughs> I remember I influenced LL Cool J for Spin and I sort of wanted to do the sociological study where I stood outside of CBGBs and ask kids what they thought of his new record. <laughs> and, you know, I was aware of how white our music scene was. What did white kids outside of CBGBs <laughs> think of LL Cool J's record? Well, maybe some of them hadn't heard it or they weren't aware they had a new record. He had done this record with his first record, Rick Rubin produced. Right. And I'm curious how much were the rock choices, rock sample choices, in the aesthetic of Rick's and how much was LL Cool J's. So that's kind of how that song Cool Thing came about, was being disappointed that he was into Bon Jovi <laughs> and not like the Velvet Underground or something. <laughs> or Sonic Youth, you know, like weirder shit. <laughs> but it was just, you know, about, because I really liked his record, Radio. When I think about the 80s art scene specifically, I often think about this famous work that David Robbins did. David Robbins was a photographer who was quite well known in the 80s and did this piece in 1986 called Talent. I've used this actually in my teaching, you know, to sort of show how things shift. But Talent was this work in which he had 
artists who were famous at the time do headshots, like the headshots that people used to send around if they were models or actors when they were soliciting work, in a sense, you know, trying to get acting jobs or modeling jobs. And some of the people in talent in this piece are as well known today as they were then. You know, Jenny Holzer, Cindy Sherman, Jeff Koons, Robert Longo. Some of them are people who I think after the crash of the 80s or early 90s in the art world went to Asia and then sort of reemerged. You know, Ashley Bickerton, I think, went to Indonesia. Peter Nagy went to India and then reemerged as a gallerist. And then you have some people like Gretchen Bender and Stephen Perino, who I think dropped out of the picture and then came back into the picture more recently. And then you have some people whose names, I don't even recognize names like Robin Wiglinski or Thomas Lawson. It's interesting how when you look at that and you see how the career arcs and the, the lives of some of the people went who were on equal footing at the time and some disappeared. For me, when I think about that piece, it causes reflection and meditation on the nature of celebrity and success within the cultural world and how maybe fragile it can be. Well, I don't know. I I think it just has so much to do with one's personality more than anything. How ambitious are you? What is your drive? You know, some people want to make things, but they're afraid of success or they don't want that idea of success in their head. I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's a fragile thing. I mean, when I really think about actually, I never had a backup plan or something like, I'm never going to be a secretary. <laughs> I think it's also youth. You have more of a fearlessness and you, I, don't know, I just didn't really think about success one way or the other. I just kind of felt like I'm doing this or I have to do this. I think not having a backup plan is pretty important just because there are so many obstacles that otherwise, if you have a backup plan, you may defer to it. Charles Saatchi once said that the art world are neophiliacs, that they're always interested in new ideas, new people, etc. But sometimes I think it's also both in music and art that there's an almost like an eating of the young. There's this constant need for new names, for new ideas, for new faces, for new stories. And yet that we cycle through them pretty quickly today, at least. If you pick up an art forum magazine from five years ago, it just feels like half the names are names who you barely remember because they came and they went. Was it always like that? Was it like that in the scene, either musically or artistically, Kim, Lisa? I don't feel like you have to be up on what new bands there are. I'm constantly listening to old music or rediscovering basically old music or reappreciating it. And in reaction to the fact that there are so many bands, there's so much music, there's so many artists, there's so many TV shows. <laughs> anyway, I, <laughs> it does, after a while, feel like you're just, um, it just drives me to want to look at old art or look at listen to old music. Maybe just because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like I'm so much more interested in history now that I'm older and appreciate it more actually learning about it <laughs> relearning about it and i think that's actually one of the greatest things about people wanting to be more diverse in who they show and who they're writing about it makes it at least much more interesting to discover artists black artists also latin artists and women artists that were overlooked or on the sidelines basically no, I was just going to say that's trending. <laughs> yeah, that's so critically important to relook at history and re-examine people who were overlooked for whatever reason. But even that can't have the purity of being. It has to be marketed. 
Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I find what Mark is saying completely true. And as a gallerist, fatally depressing, (laughs) you know, because for us, we're in it for the long haul. So it has this feeling of eternity and timelessness. And it's more the demand of the turnover, the demand of new crack for the old crack. Sorry, I don't have new crack today. And we've taken on like six artists in the last two years, which is really like a huge amount of artists for us to take on. That's just because of our interest. We'll go through years where we don't take on any new artists. And then you go through a year or two where you take on a lot of artists. But I think that's really important for galleries to do, obviously. But the demand is always for the new. Yes. Kim, I think most people have heard of you as a musician But of course, more and more people are hearing of you as an artist, but you've also written a couple of books and even had a clothing label at one point. So you haven't been very good at staying in your lane, so to speak. How have people reacted to that? People who think of you one way as a musician in the music world, how do they react when they realize that you're doing things in other fields? Because sometimes these borders can be quite tough. Yeah, I think I've always felt that it is hard for me to be known as a visual artist because people know me as a musician. I mean, I remember when Captain Beefheart retired from music and I went to his opening and I didn't feel like his paintings were as radical or interesting as his music. And I was obnoxious. I said, are you going to make another record? And um, (laughs) he's like, Oh no, well, my friend Schnabel's really helped me out here. <laughs> you know, like he was painting, he was selling paintings. He was at the point in his life when he could retire, actually. The expressionism in his music didn't work as well for me as a painter. And I guess for me to accept. But now I can look at him and go, yeah, it's a nice painting. So I guess I'm always aware of well, I might not ever achieve any kind of profound contribution to the visual art world. <laughs> but in a way, I'm having this sort of art career that is me. I don't think I would have liked having a conventional art career in the sense of that's all I did. When you started to do shows again in galleries, were you afraid that people would react to your work in the way that you had initially reacted to Captain Beefheart slash Don Van Vliet. <laughs> yeah, I guess to some extent, yeah. Although it did drive me to maybe do a certain kind of art that had a certain conceptualism to it. Yeah. Right, because you've had the design office for a really long time. Yeah, I thought of putting everything under that moniker, but it's confusing and I don't think gallerists appreciate it. <laughs> but it makes so much sense, especially with your interest in how the luxury real estate market has partially collapsed culture in New York City and also the way that they're named is so specific, which I love that about your work and the relationship that those have formally to your earlier noise paintings, which is an ongoing series. I thought that was so brilliant to be able to exhibit under both platforms. I want to get back to the influence of real estate on culture, Lisa, because I think it's important that we acknowledge this. Part of the reason why the New York scene of the 80s and the early 90s existed was because there was a lot of cheap real estate. Cheap real estate allows people to take risks. 
and yes. allows people with no money to launch galleries and allows people to be less professional, be more risk-taking, more opportunistic, embrace things that may or may not work. That's a huge shift, obviously. Yeah, my rent was $450 for a 3,000 square foot rent controlled loft. And I still couldn't pay the rent. I had four roommates, three jobs. <laughs> you started in Gramercy Park, or the Flatiron District, and then you went to the East Village, and then you were in Soho, and now you're in Chelsea, which of course is surrounded by luxury real estate. A friend of mine once referred I think rightly, he said, you know, artists and students are the shock troops of gentrification. So obviously, when you go into a neighborhood, you start a process, which, of course, doesn't necessarily work out well for you. But I'm curious how you've lived that, how you feel about this, because it's a really important dynamic within culture and economics within cities. Yes, I guess the real estate developers have really caught on to that idea, <laughs> whereas um Way before my time, obviously, galleries and nonprofits were like snails that would move into unoccupied structures because they were already abandoned in a neighborhood that no one cared about. So the process of using galleries or nonprofits and artists to gentrify a neighborhood seemed much later to me as a strategy. Certainly now, it's horrifying and you don't want to participate in I'm already like in the belly of the beast. So it's too late for me. <laughs> and I got here in 95 and there was only two galleries. And when the East village collapsed, it was like, where are we going to go? We can't go uptown. That would be ridiculous. When I was in the East village, I think at the tail end, there was a Tompkins square riots, the police coming in, on horses and trampling over protesters and homeless people. And then TP Village was burnt to the ground. Yeah, there was really nowhere to go. So we thought, well, Soho's over. No one cares about Soho anymore <laughs> because a lot of those galleries had moved uptown. So we went down, you know, we were trying to be more like Canal and Mercer, Green, Spring, or that was very much a different world than anything up north of Spring. That was all the fancy galleries. So we didn't see ourselves as gentrifiers. We were just young and broke and had nowhere to go. And we found really cheap spaces that no one like cared about. We talked a lot about how New York has shifted and changed the neighborhoods, et cetera. When did you feel it starting to shift? What was the moment where you were like, this is a different city than where I launched my art world? enterprises. I mean, this is so weirdly specific, but I wasn't that far from Union Square. So obviously we would go there a lot because there were so many clubs nearby and then Warhol Studio was there and the farmer's market was there. But when they first built Zeckendorf Towers, I had never seen a luxury high rise in my life except De Boca or Fort Lauderdale. So I thought, oh, that's weird. And that was like in the eighties, you know, but the idea of luxury, uh, like luxury consumption was such an baked in 80s notion that nothing really seemed that shocking except maybe more the demise of things. Like what? Probably around the time that Giuliani was mayor, that's when I saw really significant changes. He had militarized the police force. Giuliani was such a maniac. He changed culture so much in New York and he killed the nightclubs. One by one, they just went because... It was considered seedy. So that for me was a huge change. You just lost track of people after that. 
how important a role did nightclubs play in the art scene of that period? Oh, huge. That's where people met, really. Something really cliche and corny, like me hanging out at Danceteria at two in the morning and meeting Colin Delane and kind of like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I'm thinking about opening a gallery. Oh, really? I'm thinking of opening a gallery. <laughs> you want to do it together? You know, like that. You know, that would happen in a club. So it's kind of like where you would see everybody. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge intersection of characters in the clubs. Mud Club was really an art project and they launched a thousand. That's an amazing book. You should read the Mud Club book. They literally launched a thousand careers. And then Dennis Oppenheim's loft was across the street and Odeon was around the corner. So yeah, music was super key and, you know, performances. When I think about today's New York, the art scene has pretty successfully shifted around from place to place, but the density of luxury real estate, even in places like Chinatown and the Lower East Side, every time I go for a gallery tour down there, it seems like there's another soft loft style condo springing up. How do you see that evolving in New York? I think this year was such a mixed bag. Some people got 30% discounts. Some people lost their leases. Some people got free rent. I don't know. Right. Right now, it seems like galleries are thriving. Every other email that I read, people are opening up second and third and fourth spaces. And not just big galleries, younger galleries are moving from LA to New York or adding a space. So I think that's definitely an indicator that the East Village and China, I think that area is going to be really positive and affordable for people for at least a couple of years. You'd have to be an idiot to develop a new building today. There's so many buildings that are bankrupt and stalled right now in Chelsea. So that's a good thing. The city really needs to take action. Actually, when there was some emergency meeting brain trust that was created with galleries and the city of New York. And they asked us, what do we need to do to keep culture in the city? Because the galleries are actually generating as much money for tourism as the museums are. And we're like, well, if you don't take care of the artists ASAP and create some kind of subsidized studio space and for nonprofits, you're not going to have culture here at all anymore. And they're like, well, we can't help you with that. <laughs> they're like, we've got some spaces on Governor's Island. And we're like, oh. What do you miss most from that era, 80s, early 90s? I really just miss seeing like characters <laughs> on the street or like um, different kinds of people. <laughs> but you know, the city will always have the same energy and this DNA will always be about money and good times. Yesterday I was at a couple of galleries in Tribeca. That area is now like popping up. People are rediscovering that area, I guess. I walked by what was the Mud Club and what was Dave's mm. Lunchinette and what was Magoo's and, but you know, I live in LA now. Yeah. They curate art districts. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Is that weird to see curated art districts when they were more organically springing up around you? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. One thing I do like about LA and the art world is just constantly discovering little small galleries. And some have been around for a while, like Old Townhouse. I just saw this great Nora Schultz show there. Anyway, many buildings are interesting spots in a mini mall in the corner. People often make this comparison. They say that L.A. now for artists has the kind of vibrancy that New York had in the 80s and early 90s. I don't know. I would never say that. It's true. The club scene and the music scene in New York, even though it grew more and more divergent from the art scene, 
it's still added to the whole picture. And I don't really feel that in LA. I don't really know. I don't actually know the music scene in, in LA. What impact did the clubs have on the art scene? It just like added another level of expression and energy and people coming together a lot, which is hard to find in LA. And it's hard to feel like what you do in LA adds up. <laughs> it's kind of like a drop in the ocean. Does it have ramifications? Does it build on anything? What do you miss most? I think a city has to have a certain level of decay to make it interesting. And so I really miss that so much, especially on the West Side. Sure, New York is so much livable now. And am I stoked that I can ride my bike everywhere and not get killed? That's really nice. <laughs> and I'm also, you know, over 60. But I miss the decay, really. You almost have to be careful what you wish for, because that almost certainly came true this year. I mean, it's kind of a miracle that so many cities came out of COVID intact and actually thriving. New York City right now hasn't looked this good in a really long time. It just literally looks beautiful and lush. So that's what I miss. Yeah. The sense of newness and exploration through just rancid decay and neglect. I miss that a lot. Because it's exciting and that's creatively stimulating. Looking at something pretty all the time, not so much. <laughs> I think I'm going to stop there because I don't think it's going to get much better than this. Uh, you know? <laughs> well, that was super fun. Thank you for your questions. It was a pleasure. I have to go. I'm meeting somebody to go uptown to see the Katie Nolan show. Thank you, Kim. That was awesome. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> see you soon. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.